March 20th of 2023 marks the 20th anniversary of the war in Iraq. During the next few weeks, I am going to discuss the consequences of the war on security in America and the world. In this episode, it's a wide-ranging discussion about whether the American public was misled to go into war. I'll also talk about how Mexican cartels aided by China are poisoning the United States with fentanyl. And in the wake of the murder of four college students in Idaho, we will share some practical advice about how to stay safe. Now, here's my conversation with a veteran of the Iraq War, now serving Tarrant County Sheriff Bill Weyburn, who is also a veteran of the U.S. Air Force. Hello, I'm Robert Riggs. David Grantham was an intelligence officer for the Air Force in Iraq, and he has written a book called Consequences, an Intelligence Officer's War. I've asked uh, David to come in and talk to us today because here in late March, it's the 20th anniversary of the start of the war in Iraq. And you've probably heard my podcast before. I was an embedded reporter with the lead unit. Now, David has been uh, a guest here before to talk about his intelligence efforts now with the Tarrant County Sheriff in the jail and other areas of the criminal justice system around the Fort Worth area. So, David, thanks for coming in. And again, the the book is, I want to make sure everybody sees it, Consequences. You can get it in Amazon or wherever books are sold. And it's a really an interesting insight into his perspective and what he saw. So here we are, 20-year mark. What are the consequences as we, we look back? Gosh, there's, it seems like a, a laundry list. and e- e- each year, something else comes out of it that yeah. suggests there's a new consequence or a new uh, wrinkle to existing consequences. So, but first of all, thank you for having me. Glad I could uh, oh, you're welcome. Uh, join you again. The primary consequence, I mean, you could start philosophical and bring it all the way to tactical. I think philosophically, there's questions about war, questions about what you need to go to war, what information equates to an act of war what determines war. I think Iraq in some ways opened up a lot of those questions again, because we were in a very interesting time and that terrorism was at this time fairly new in terms of how do you execute a response against it or in response to it. Iraq was one of those examples of what do we do now? If we know there is terrorist activity going on in a different country, or if we know there are people supporting terrorist organizations that are a threat to us, how then do we operate? I think that's that's a very big consequence. And then you pull that down. I think what I write about in the book is ISIS. ISIS was largely a product of, not on purpose, but the whole point of consequences is you don't get to choose them. You get to choose your decisions, but not the consequences. And ISIS was was a consequence of Iraq in, in many ways uh, because they were uh, in large part created in that war, found organization in that war, and then developed into a more formidable organization as the war was coming to a quote-unquote end. As you know, I was a staffer on a defense committee in Congress long before journalism, and so I can look at things through that perspective as well. And when I look back on Iraq, I'm like, when they were making this decision to invade and get involved, did anyone really sit down and analyze and think about the consequences? And I have to think maybe they didn't. 
that it was more of a knee-jerk out of fear of weapons of mass destruction. And to come forward to today, we're aiding Ukraine. Now, I can tell you from my past experience in Congress and then covering the Pentagon and all, personally, I'm for it. Because if you can uh, put a dent in your a major enemy and you're not spilling any American blood, you know, that's, that's a, in terms of a war, that's a bargain. But I really haven't heard anybody talk about the consequences of the support. Well, going back to Iraq. Yeah. I think you're right. At the time, did people think through it? I don't know. On our level as intelligence officers in the military, we were skeptical of the information that was being used to justify the the invasion into Iraq. It didn't seem like it was foolproof. It didn't seem very solid. But then again, you're thinking maybe they know something I don't. And moreover, the big question with war oftentimes is not the war, but what do you do with the peace? It's, it's very, in some ways, it's very easy to execute war. It's very difficult to execute the peace. What do you do once you got it? I think George H.W. Bush refused to go into Iraq the first time. And part of his administration's thinking was, what do we do with it? Our mission is to get them out of Kuwait. We're going to stop at the border because we don't need to, uh, saddle ourselves with that and you know colin powell said back then if you break it it's yours yes yeah there's there's been i mean that goes back to the wars in rome where a a carthinian uh general was told you know you know how to make war but not how to make peace or or you know how to uh, conduct the war but not to conduct the peace and so those those are always big questions with war and what often happens with countries that have the capability to make war Sometimes they don't necessarily think about the peace because they're so effective at the war that they're less inclined to resist war. I think with Ukraine, the United States is showing, uh, in some ways, enormous restraint in not deploying forces. Right. And that's that's that can be impressive in some ways for a nation of our size and our strength, because. In, in international relations, there's a philosophy that countries that have the ability to make war will make war. They're more inclined to. So to show restraint is actually uh, yeah. something that not is not usual. In the case of uh, Ukraine, I haven't seen the leadership say this is the end game. You know, that's it, it, that didn't happen in Afghanistan either. Didn't happen in, in Iraq. That's what, you know, I find troubling all that about this, especially Iraq 20 years later, because the thing that I saw happen in Iraq, you know, as horrible as Saddam Hussein was, he he had really kept these religious divisions in check. So you had the Sunnis who he had aligned himself with. uh, They were highly educated. They kind of ran the government. And you had the Shiites who were more of an impoverished class of people and believers in the country. But when you stripped him away these century-old hatreds came back to life. And, and, and the Shiites, there'd always been a conflict over who was the rightful inheritor of the Prophet Muhammad after he died. And the Shiites guy got assassinated, and boy, the hatred has been on forever. And it, at one point, I did a story about, you know, this is after we're there, about all the oil that was being stolen out of the port 
right under our noses and going to the black market. And and I made contact with there were a number of Texans that were people that knew how to run oil fields that had been brought in as contractors. And uh, one it was connected with, you know, he'd been in a convoy and part of it had been blown up, people killed and stuff. What he talked about was the incredible amount of wealth in oil and gas under that country. Uh, you know, he, he thought maybe it was bigger than the Saudis. And I said to him, I said, can't you just sit both sides down in a room and tell them, look, your people are going to be among the richest in the world if you'll just stop this. And he went, the hatred goes too deep. They can't get beyond it. I think that's something we really didn't understand. That question seems to always come up. So the question of what do you do afterward or, or what's the end game, which makes me think, going back to the Iraq war, they must have asked themselves that question. Maybe it's just they didn't have an answer. No one forced an answer. Because you do. You see it historically speaking. That always has to be part of the equation. What is the end game? Tell me what the and if you don't know what the end game is, at least say I don't know. Uh, and I think the Bush administration in Iraq attempted to, in some ways, by saying this is going to be a long war. This is going to be a long time. I think they were preparing people, saying we're not sure what the end game is, but it's going to be a long time. Uh, Afghanistan, you you saw that when we uh, left twenty years later, it looked like we weren't, weren't even there. Yes. Other than now they're equipped with how many millions of dollars of equipment and vehicles right. and right. ammunition that are all U.S. funded. It looked like we weren't even there. I'm not a betting man, but I would say that probably wasn't the end game they were looking for here in the United States. So, yeah, that, that, that question has to be answered or at least articulated to the public. What is the end game? So uh, you, you talked about when you and your intelligence officers had doubts. I had doubts. During the invasion, because I was with a Patriot missile unit, uh, they had the missiles to shoot down incoming scuds. And all of the intelligence, when I got in, embedded with them, was that there would be chemical warheads on the scuds. And we, and my crew and I, we had to go to chemical warfare school and learn how to wear all the equipment and stuff. And then in the lead up, there were drills, surprise drills every day. And you you had to learn how to live and drink in that suit, which is really hard to put on. Oh, it's brutal. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, it's brutal. <laughs> yes. And the invasion was staged when it was the winter in the desert. It, you couldn't survive in that suit in the, in the 120 degrees of the summers in Iraq. And we were briefed that they thought the desert was seeded with anthrax and, we, and it would blow up in the dust going across. So we all had to get a series of five anthrax shots, which were, <laughs> you know, it feels like a hot syrup going through your body when you get it. And so then the first guns come in, we shoot them down and no warheads, nothing. And you're like, wait a minute. And then, uh, you know, in the invasion, there's no anthrax. There's nothing we're wearing. We're wearing what was called the mop gear. We're wearing everything but the uh, mask. It's the last thing to put on, but Nothing materializes. And that's and the other thing when I started having doubts is there were briefings before we went that the villages in southern Iraq were pro-American, hated Saddam, and they're going to literally welcome us with parades and all of this sort of stuff. And they were saying, look, don't get 
bogged down there. You got to keep rolling. Well, we didn't get welcomed. They were getting ambushed left and right. Later, we learned that the Fedayeen, that was this paramilitary group for Saddam, had come down and told people, you're going to fight or you're going to die. And we seemed to miss all of that. Talk about the consequences of not preparing accordingly. It was even hard to tell back then whether it was more a sense of misguided idealism or if it was lack of preparation or a little bit of both. Because what you're describing, we were being trained on, we were being told and even then, as a young intelligence officer, some of the things I was hearing, I said, I, that doesn't seem right to me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a student of history, even at this time. And historically speaking, that's not the way people respond. Even if you're an invading army, that at least initially, what ends up happening is, especially as citizens that are living in an oppressive regime, they tend to side with the regime out of necessity yes. for their lives and their right. family. Rarely do they immediately, or at least initially, go against the regime. My mother, who grew up in the Dominican Republic, when the dictator Trujillo was killed back in the 60s, she said for a period of time... People would not leave their house. They refused to celebrate because they thought it was the regime had faked his death to lure out dissenters and then kill them. Yes. She said it took a good week before people started realizing he's actually dead. And then they started cheering and, and, uh, and whatnot. So to, to have that belief, uh, it, it really begged a lot of questions of me, even as a young lieutenant, thinking that doesn't that doesn't comport historically. But again, when you're young like that, you think, well, maybe they know something I don't. Well, as a reporter, I, I, I thought that, too. I had done a lot of reporting on weapons of mass destruction before this covering terrorism. And when Colin Powell went before the United Nations and said it was there, I and I. I I had covered the Reagan White House, and he was a national security advisor in there, and I had the greatest respect for him. And I thought, okay, that's it. But now we know. There was several things like that that just, whether it was instinct or just facts or a little bit of both, but when you saw those sort of interactions, you got the sense that we're, we're relying on some fairly thin justification. I, you know, I had a discussion with this years ago with uh, an FBI agent I knew who was on a foreign terrorism intelligence task force. And he had a son in Iraq when I was there, and it was a Marine. And the good thing, he said, was that it brought all the terrorists from around the world to Iraq to fight us there and not fight us in America. What do you think of that, looking back? Yeah, I've heard that, and I, I understand the sentiment. Mm -hmm. Tactically speaking, Yes, there was a logical solution. Uh, we in the intelligence world for spying, we call them honeypots. Yes, we purposely make something sweet to attract the adversary, so they get stuck, and then we got them. So I understand that logically, but that was not the reason we went to war. That wasn't the reason that the Bush administration says we're going to war so that we will attract terrorists to Iraq. Because if I was an Iraqi, I'm thinking. Well, can't you pick another country to <laughs> to attract all these bad guys to? Right, right. Uh, so that feels to me like a a a late explanation for you're using truth, but in a context to justify something that that truth wasn't originally intended. 
So I do know a lot of people believe that George W. and uh, Cheney, the vice president, lied, that they were just blatantly lying. After covering politics, covering the Pentagon and all, and the foreign policy-making apparatus for years, I don't, I don't believe that. I, to go back to what you said earlier, I believe that it was guided by or misguided ideology. And they wanted to believe you know, that they deeply, really believe they had weapons of mass destruction and we've got to do something about it and certainly weren't prepared. I've never, never considered that they were lying to yeah. the American people. I do believe there was an, a, an inertia, a political inertia that demanded action after 9-11 and Saddam was a bad guy. No doubt. He was supporting terrorist organizations, generally speaking. Yes. Those, however, tended to be groups that were hurting Israel or being used mm -hmm. against Israel. Right. So when you begin to look at the justification, the questions back even back then came up. Why not North Korea? Aren't they more of a threat than Iraq is? Why not X country or Y country? Uh, so I, I don't think they were lying. I do think it was a sense of a need to do something to fight the war on terror and past that. I think they're, they're looking for justification. Iraq became that, that place for a number of good reasons, I think logically speaking, but also reasons that I don't think were justified. Let's pause for a message. And when we come back, I want to talk about the consequences of this in law enforcement. Now that you're in law enforcement. We're talking with David Grantham. He's the author of the book, Consequences, an Intelligence Officer's War. David was in Iraq. Uh, he now serves with the uh, sheriff of Tarrant County as the head of intelligence. Have you seen consequences to life in America, criminal activity, terrorism threats come out of Iraq and come out of Afghanistan? Absolutely. In fact, as we said in the first segment, ISIS was... You could draw a direct line from ISIS to, uh, or the creation of ISIS to their activity in Europe and the United States. That has been an ever-present threat. But interestingly, while the war itself was executed, maybe on some, some very thin justification, what we learned there and Afghanistan has helped in law enforcement immensely. And one of the ones that I often talk about is the collection of intelligence. I was raised in the intelligence world by men and women who worked largely in the Cold War era. Cold War intelligence collection was, I would say, slower, not in a negative sense. It was just more methodical. There was instances of dead drops, you know, leaving information for someone to pick up. It, right. it was a cloak and dagger type of situation. Once we went into Afghanistan and Iraq, the intelligence collection, the way we did it changed quickly because we needed the same information. We needed the same accuracy, but we needed it immediately. For instance, we have a source who tells us, I know of a terrorist cell that's trying to put a roadside bomb on this stretch of road. They're waiting for a convoy. We go back, we realize a convoy is leaving in 24 hours. And you can't delay this convoy. So we began collecting intelligence on, is there a bomb there? Are they going to put the bomb there? Who is this organization? We had to work at a speed 
that even our superiors weren't used to because it was kind of expected in intelligence. If you work at that speed, your accuracy will decrease. Whereas we were expected to work at that speed and have accurate information because you can't just, you can't have the war effort stop because you may have some good intelligence. The war efforts move, and I talk about that in the book. We talk about a chow hall that uh, we had information chow hall was going to be bombed where we were at. We had to brief that to our commanders. Now the commanders have to make a decision. Do I take all my resources? Because people have to eat. Do I take all my resources off the, all the security posts and check everything coming in and out? What kind of security level do I make at the chow hall in order to respond to this intelligence? What that's done for law enforcement, though, there's a lot of us veterans that have come home and when school shootings and active shooter and mass shooter, these things are, as you well know, all over the place, all the time. It's always a threat, always a concern. And that, in some ways, parallels the terrorism threat because it's information that you could be getting in a very short period of time. It has to be accurate and you have to move quickly. For a lot of veterans like myself, that's not unusual for us. We're used to that sense of stop what you're doing, collect the information, make sure it's accurate and act on it. Whereas before that wasn't necessarily the instinct, whether in law enforcement or military and the uh, intelligence side. That's one of the really big things that I think has been a good consequence, a good outcome of the war is that sense of tempo and being able to respond to that tempo. Another thing that, that has really helped in law enforcement is appreciating the organization. I call it the non-sexy elements of an organization. When we go into Iraq, we're studying the terrorist organizations and we're looking at ISIS before they were ISIS. A lot of ISIS members were at one time, they were former Baathist. They were in Camp Buka where I served at the prison there in Southern Iraq. And there was a lot of things about them that you had to study to understand who they were and what the threat was. And they weren't necessarily sexy stuff because with terrorism, it's expected that you're looking at bombs and missiles mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. or whatever threat that they pose. Whereas economic intelligence or political intelligence, it's expected to be a little less sexy. What are the, what are the ideas behind certain laws? What are they going to move around in their country resource wise? We were taking that stuff and applying it to terrorism because at the end of the day, if you can understand what tribe this, this man was from, you might understand what influence he's going to have within the organization. And you could begin to see where money was moving. If you knew which tribe he was with, if he was with a very wealthy tribe, you might know he would be the one receiving money. So you begin to piece together yes. things. And we've taken that sense of take the time to understand the organization, those non-sexy, uh, non-cool elements, and apply that into law enforcement. And what that's done for a lot of law enforcement is with drug cartels in particular, while it's fun to kick down doors and, as I like to say, cuff them and stuff them, there is an element to understanding the organization. What kind of transportation do they prefer? How do they move their money? How do they package their drugs? How do they send cash back? Do they send physical cash back? What are the techniques that they use to smuggle? These are all things that aren't necessarily the most exciting thing, but they could provide significant information to help in the prosecution of these groups or hone in on what's the most important thing to focus on. Uh, do you think we're always going to be facing a 
terrorist threat, a bombing by a terror group in the States. You know, we, we go through a, a period where I'm sure the, certainly the public is complacent. They don't think it's in, within the realm of possibility anymore that we've won. I, I do. I, I don't think it's ever a threat that's going to go away. It's a threat that'll probably lessen mm-hmm. and increase over time, depending on the global situation. Right now, we're seeing a lull, at least in the United States and Europe and these type of attacks. Because if you remember, there was a period there in Europe mm-hmm. where there was an ta- attack, it seemed like every six months, a very, very brutal attack. And part of the reason that that has gone down is because ISIS was taken out largely. And I, and I credit General James Mattis for leading that charge. And one of the things, as I understand it, talking to people up there, they said one of the mistakes, one of the consequences that we learned from Iraq was wanting to shoot with one hand and feed, feed the hungry with the other. And the military can't do that. They have to be focused on war. And James Mattis came in and said, we're going to focus on going after ISIS and getting rid of ISIS. And so there were stories I heard from guys who uh, had friends that went through Syria, for instance, before they got Baghdadi and said, people were asking, hey, could you help us with this hospital? Could you help us with it? And they said, no, we're not here for that. We're here for one mission, kill and destroy. That's what we're here for. And so when that happened, you saw that you saw an immediate decrease in attacks. Now, what we've seen lately is an increase in the digital recruitment and inspiration right, right and because of that just that element alone tells me this isn't going away it may ebb and flow because the digital recruitment relies on people responding to it and acting as lone wolves as they say so that that can be a bit more difficult to encourage that you're not going to get the kind of results you would if you had like a cell like they did in europe who was able to carry out att- multiple attacks over a long period of time in 2005, I was in uh, Birmingham, England, and it was covering terrorism. There was a recruitment effort going in that community to send suicide bombers to Iraq. There was the owner of a large Islamic bookstore was trying to counter their message. These were Egyptians and Arabs that had come in to a Pakistani community, and they are all English-speaking. They were Muslim and went to the mosque regularly, but they were English-speaking, and the Egyptians and all that had come in, the Arabs, had said, well, we speak the language of the prophet. You don't. We really know how to interpret this. But he talked about what had been going on there, and but he, he said that this stuck with me forever. We've seen it play out here. He said, we're coming to a time where I don't have to give you the gun. All I have to do is put the idea in your head, you will find the gun. And it was so prophetic to everything we'd seen going on. Yes, that's the challenge law enforcement is facing, military, but law enforcement primarily. That's the the really big issue is not waiting for that person to read the idea, embrace the idea, and move forward. In fact, within law enforcement circles, what we're encountering more often than not is people who seek out some of these ideas and in the general public those ideas aren't affirmed they're a bit they're marginalized yes online they're not you can find your groups online that will not only encourage this idea they will affirm you in your desires to execute on this idea and because of that not only is the threat the number of possible threats growing 
It's also a variety of threats that become very difficult to profile, if you will. Yes. That is becoming a significant challenge because you could be a, you could be a young male in a, in a rural area of some state in the United States. You find a certain website that gives you a certain idea that nobody around you has ever subscribed to. You buy into it. And suddenly you act on that violent idea, whatever that idea may be, terrorism, racism, whatever that idea is fueled by, and you can act on it and no one may see it coming. And they certainly wouldn't look at you and say, oh, that that he fits the profile of someone that would subscribe to that idea. Yes. As law enforcement, now it's becoming a very difficult challenge to say, listen, we, we can't, you can't just merely say these groups of men who fit this general profile will generally respond to this. It. It runs the game. The last two active shooters in California, what, two, a month ago now, both of them were Asian males, yes. 65 or older. That was not on your active shooter Right. And here we had chart. been thinking it was young, disaffected uh, white men, you know, young. And now suddenly uh, that comes about. Well, there was a period of time, and I used this on a, one of my briefings talking to other intelligence officers within law enforcement. I said, this was after the Buffalo supermarket shooting or no, well, it was in that period of time, Mm -hmm. but before that and after that, there was active shooters in New York in the subway. And then I believe here in Texas. And when you look at the span of people, there was a uh, white male, a black male and a Hispanic male. And in each location was a soft target and it was designed to inflict terror and death mm-hmm. to a different segments of society for different reasons. But so when you looked at it, you, it seems at face value easy to go, okay, I can see where that came from in this one. Yes. But when you collectively try to examine it as law enforcement in order to predict and prevent, then it becomes a significant challenge because nobody is quite fitting the profile. Yeah, I just don't know how you do it. I mean, it's just since it's. There's so much online that can feed people. Well, there's steps within law enforcement that we've gotten better at. And again, this goes back to the training within terrorism is there. Generally speaking, most people take steps toward that violent act. And those steps more or less involve embracing an idea, Mm -hmm. changing your behavior to agree to that idea, planning and doing surveillance to execute on that mission, doing a dry run, to actually execute without doing it, and then, and then doing it. We see that with terrorism. And we would tell people, in order to catch a terrorist before they act, you generally want to find them, watch for that dry run or the acquiring of material, that preparation. Fertilizer, for instance. There's been several stories of Men who have ordered fertilizer triggered a call at the FBI. Turns out they were trying to build a bomb. That's happened over and over again. Which we, was the component for the Oklahoma City bombing. Exactly. Yes. And you see that now with, with active shooters and different types of killers, if you will, that in, they're in that mass shooting or mass killing category. There's generally a period of time where they're collecting and beginning the preparation. And then there's the dry run. Yeah period. And so we encourage people just like we did after 2001, we tell people look for that preparation and dry run period because they will they will walk through their act prior to doing it and report the suspicions. Yes. Because a lot of people are 
reluctant to report. They think they think that, oh, you know, maybe it's not that, or they're gonna, the police are going to think I'm a nut. Yes, I, I encourage people to not overthink it. The police job is to take the information and look into it, and people do that all even today. When you would think after all the terrorism we've seen, all the active shooters we'd seen, you would think at this point people would, would say, no, I need to report this, and they still don't. We still self-censor, and I encourage people, if your instinct tells you something's not right, even if you don't know why it doesn't feel right, still report it, because you could have the piece of the puzzle. Law enforcement may have already talked to four other people who had the same feeling in a different perspective. And your piece could be the piece that allows them to actually act on it. Uh, but if nobody reports, we'll never know. What are you seeing in terms of crime trends now? Do you see any new types of crimes, new twist on crimes? Right now, the big challenge is fentanyl. Yes. That's, that's taking... That alone is, is requiring resources that we, I don't know that law enforcement has ever leveraged. And I mean resources in the sense of protection from exposure to law enforcement who may show up to a scene there's fentanyl, all the way to tracking dealers who are bringing this fentanyl up from the border. It is an enormous problem. We have the last statistic I think from 2021, and the numbers are continuing forward from 22 to 23, that there's something like 350 to 360 people dying a day from what we call fentanyl poisoning, because a lot of these people don't know that there's fentanyl in this drug. And there's a lot of people that are taking this for the first time, or they have maybe dabbled in something and are provided a, a pill and take it and are dead from that one pill. That 360 people a day dying from fentanyl poisoning, that's like a, a plane crashing, passenger plane crashing every day. And when you look at oh, it, yeah. it's yeah. incredible, the numbers. And I almost wonder if we've sort of become numb to it that you just don't even see it in the media. I was talking to a legislator because we're working with the legislature here in Texas and on national levels for how do we combat this threat? from the cartels who are providing this drug. And I said, you know, people keep talking about the amount of fentanyl we're finding at the border. And they're trying to draw a, par uh, a, a context to that by saying, this is enough to kill right. X number of people. And I said, you know, that was great six months, nine months ago. People are becoming numb to that, I think, unfortunately, because when someone says we, we have, we've, we've confiscated 20 pounds of fentanyl, that's enough to kill everyone in America three times. It's a number that's so significant that it's very hard to process. We've got to find another way to express that. But nevertheless, I do think we've become numb to it. And I think partly because we don't really appreciate the, the, enormous number of people because that have died because it's spread out. Like I said, if yeah. a plane fell out of the sky every day for one year, we'd be, we have, we would have fixed it. So I've seen reports that the precursor chemicals are supplied to the cartels by China. Do you shed any light on that? Yes. Yeah, as far as we, as far as we can tell intelligence wise, I think the net from the local to the national 
sector, everyone agrees that almost all the precursor chemicals that are used to make fentanyl are made in China. And then Chinese organized crime, with, in my opinion, with the uh, blessing of the Communist yeah. Party in China, are sending those to the cartel. The cartels have now set up fentanyl labs in Mexico. So as those precursors come in, they can make them in bulk. And the biggest challenge with it, well, number of challenges, but one of them is the fact that it's synthetic. So you're not looking at a growth cycle like marijuana or cocaine. It's synthetic. You can make as much as chemicals as you can get. That's how much stuff you can make. Moreover, fentanyl, it only requires very, very little amount, milligram amount for a high to enhance the high for a drug user. Problem is that same amount can kill you and they can traffic. Uh, a very small amount can go a long way in terms of money and cash flow. Well, that makes me wonder if it's a part of the uh, policy of the Chinese to undermine American society. That's a form of war. I've written a couple papers and gone as far as, as saying at some level, we're facing an asymmetric war from our adversaries and from Venezuela, from China, and they're using uh, the cartels who are aware, not unwittingly, they're they're witting in this, using the cartels as the vehicle to get the drugs here. And the drugs are the weapon in this asymmetric war. And I point to, there's several instances, but I, I couple them together when the Department of Justice sent out charges against Nicolas Maduro, the, the dictator, or if he's called president of Venezuela, he and his administration along with the FARC, were weaponizing cocaine. They were sending drugs to destabilize U.S. communities. They were purposely, they were weaponizing. The former president of Honduras, Juan Hernandez, he was brought to the United States on drug charges, extradited. He was quoted as saying to an informant, I want as much cocaine as I can to shove it up the nose of the gringos. I've talked myself to cartel members who have said, we will send whatever kills the gringo. They have narco ballads, narco music about this very thing. So when you couple all this together, you begin to see a, a perspective that says, no, we want to proactively go after the United States to hurt Americans. And until our policies reflect the threat that we're facing, we're going to continue to treat this like a, just a brutal drug business. But it's more than that. Well, I know that some people propose naming uh, some of the cartels as terrorist organizations. Why the reluctance, do you think, politically to do that? Well, I think there's a number of things with the, the designated terrorist organization. One of the problems, at least in messaging, is people that advocate for that often point to the violence of the cartel as justification. And... The cartel doesn't necessarily use its violence to overthrow the United States, mm -hmm. whereas Al Qaeda, ISIS, they, yes. that's, that's a, it's a political intention. So you can't just say you're violent, therefore you're a terrorist. Okay. That, and moreover, you want Latin American partners to join you in that fight. And even in Latin America, terrorism is not well known. It's not a, it's not a familiar concept. Whereas organized crime, and drugs and sedition, those type of things are very well known. So I think some of the reluctance is partly we don't fully understand what terrorism is in a 
I mean, a legal sense, I guess we do. We've got it more firm than we did 20 years ago, but there's still challenges around how do you bring on partners to agree with that? Moreover, terrorism tends to implicate others who are involved in that process. Well, someone who's a drug user to now, are we equating them to a terrorist because they're absorbing and taking that, that drug. So it becomes very difficult in that way, but I don't think we can't achieve what we're attempting to achieve in a different direction. The point is we want to have the leverage to go after these organizations like we would a terrorist organization. I think you can do that without labeling them a terrorist. But we don't seem to be doing that right now. No, we're not. I don't see a proactive response. And I think part of the problem is going back to how we perceive what they're doing. We perceive them to be a brutal business. And therefore, they need to be prosecuted um, through uh, the traditional method of drug distribution. But that doesn't go far enough. We're, we're selling ourselves short by treating it like that. In fact, on a state level, we've brought up organized crime laws and we're trying to strengthen organized crime laws. We're even going as far as trying to strengthen uh, sedition laws because we were making the argument that cartels are seditious and conspiratorial in nature. Their very fabric of their being, how they operate is intended to be just that. Well, that's an interesting approach of an, an otherwise of trying to overthrow the U.S. government. There's this meaty middle, that's what I call it. You have a nation state like China that wants to go to war with us, let's say. I say that figuratively. And then you have a cartel or maybe an, a street gang that is not trying to attempt to overthrow a government so much as fund their own activities. Then you have this meaty middle of groups that... They do attempt to destabilize local communities because any, any power that they can have by corrupting local officials, by occupying police, anything they can do that will give them more power and undermine the authority and the effectiveness of a local government and hurt the population does them good. To me, that is seditious and how that operates. Let's take this down to just personal protection in America these days. The nation was focused on the murders of those four students in Idaho. I've always thought college students are so vulnerable. They, you know, they're party. They don't pay attention to what's going on around them. I went through that with my kids. And if you're sending your, your son or daughter off to college or, or working in the city or something, what should they be thinking about? You don't want to be looking over your shoulder all the time, but Sometimes it's as simple as trust your gut. When you are operating in a, a permissive environment like college, you really have to know your environment and trust your instinct when something doesn't feel right, when someone doesn't feel right. Uh, I had a, f a friend growing up, his dad would say, if you learn when it's time to go, you'll save yourself a lot of time. And I remember that growing up and we'd hear that. Know when it's time to go. You better know when it's time to go. Mm -hmm. And we'd find ourselves at a party or an event, and you just, you'd sense that this isn't headed in the right direction. Maybe drugs were being introduced somewhere. And, and so sometimes it's as simple as knowing your environment, trusting your instinct, and knowing when it's time to go. Now, in those instances where you're at home and someone breaks in, there's nothing you can do in that, right. that when it doesn't apply. Right. Then I think it's, it's don't hesitate to have the proper security measures 
around you. Don't hesitate to have locks, to have cameras. Don't sometimes we get the sense that, that it can't happen here. Yes. It's always, it can't yeah. happen here. And unfortunately it can. And therefore don't think of yourself as paranoid or otherwise uh, a weirdo. If you decide to take basic security steps, parents, be willing to do that. One of the greatest struggles when we go back to talking about active shooter and terrorism is parents and or friends around someone who dismiss behavior that they're exhibiting. It's at, when I first encountered it or when I first heard about how often this happens, I thought, well, maybe the investigator needs needs to do a little bit better work. You know, I, I was uh, arrogant in that way. And, and then when I encountered it a few times, I thought, my gosh, there really is. It becomes very difficult to wrap your mind around an idea that maybe someone you love or someone near you is behaving in a way that is attracting the attention of law enforcement. Maybe they see them online doing things or communicating with people or saying things. And it's shocking how often someone will say, wow, that's kids being kids or, mm -hmm. oh, my friend wouldn't do that. Yeah. Like, no, I'm not as law for, I'm not coming to you because, um, something small yeah. we're, we're, we're here for a specific reason. So anyway, it, there's, don't ever be afraid to take the proper steps that you need to take as a parent, as a student, make sure that you take care of yourself, be aware of your surroundings and trust your gut. Let me ask you about an issue that was brought up to me uh, recently in a podcast. I was being interviewed by a podcaster in London and they were brought up the subject that People had a short fuse, short temper, and they were having road rage, and there they were getting out and stabbing each other and stuff. And we see that here, where somebody cuts somebody off on traffic, and now they're getting out and shooting it out. Do you have any sense of where, what's fueling this anger that people are, are so short-fused? I'm not sure. I at one point, I thought it was relationships. We tend to not shoot people that we know. <laughs> we tend, or well, they're doing this just yeah. It's a, it's a strange. So I, I thought maybe there was a sense of relationship and humanity that I may not know this person has cut me off, but I don't feel the need to to respond in that way. And now I wonder if it's even that. I I, I don't know. I honestly couldn't tell you where this sense of anger uh, and tension comes from. In our, I feel like. Our country as a whole, we're operating at a, at a very high tempo, and I think it's some of it's self-induced, some of it's manufactured, and I, I do believe if we can find in ourselves individually the restraint and the ability to pull back from that high tension, reflect on, on why do we feel that way individually, it may address going forward how we respond to others and, and you could speculate whether it's social media or others, yes. but, but there is a high tempo and we do need to take one step back from that high tempo. Well, that's a great word to close on is restraint. David Grantham, thank you for coming in the book consequences of an intelligence officer's war. This is good reading as we hit the 20th anniversary of kicking off the war in Iraq. Thank you. True Crime Reporter is written by me, Robert Riggs. It is produced and researched by Siler Burr. You can read more about our team on our website at truecrimereporter.com. And while you're there, please sign up to join our true crime community. It's free. 
There's a red box on every page to receive our free email updates with behind-the-scenes information. And you can email your suggestions to fan at truecrimereporter.com. I read all of them. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.